Scrum. Welcome one, welcome all. You are listening to another kick-ass episode of the Chromecast. We are on, what is this, uh, season four, episode 12. We're talking about an abominable temple, or the Temple of Abomination. Uh, I'm Luke. I'm Josh. And I'm John. And we welcome you here to our, to our abode. We're gonna, we're gonna get into a Robert E. Howard story with, uh, maybe tearing and sitting in and writing a few words. On top of it, but before we do that, we've got stuff to talk about on the front end. What the temple you... of new business. <laughs> the temple of new business. <laughs> what are you drinking, John? Uh, Wild Turkey 101. Nice. Nice. And you two, delicious looking beer bottles. We Yeah, we've been uh, polishing off some beers. Uh, Luke has, I'm going to let you tackle that. I'm gonna just going to call it Stella Artois Cider. Okay. The Cidre. Stella Artois Cidre. Cidre. That's that's what uh, the in-laws left over at the house, so I have three or nice. four of those that need to get drunk up. Uh, How many have you polished off tonight? Just one. Just one so far, and okay. then I'm drinking on one of the beers that Josh brought, which is... A Leinenkugel's Big Butt Doppelbach. Thick. I may have made this joke before, but I like Big Butt Doppelbach, and I cannot lie. Love it. It's good. <laughs> it's a seasonal, I guess. I don't know. It's got I, some body. It does. I've never had this before, but we were talking about Line and Kugel earlier and how a lot of their stuff we just kind of pass over, like it's okay, but wouldn't go out of our way, right? But this is good. Like I, I dig this a lot. Hey, German. <laughs> and yeah. If, and if we run out of beers, we've got some whiskey we can drink. So <laughs> if it comes to it, always we've got three a- ciders and six beers. I hope you don't run out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll drink that if we get to it. Uh, what else, guys? We have uh, a handful of emails that we can talk about that we've received in the interim. That's right. Uh, how about you? How about you talk about a few of those, Josh? Okay, yeah, uh, we've gotten a couple of emails. Uh, we're gonna stick to the the ones about Cormac MacArt and uh, things that are relevant to the Tigers of the Sea episode. And so uh, our friend Christopher Nelson emailed and said, "Hi, guys." Just listen to your Tigers of the Sea podcast. Excellent as always. Thank you, sir. I don't think I've ever read this particular Cormac Mac art story, but I've read the Zebra edition of Sword of the Gale. I haven't looked at in a while, but I'm pretty sure the only thing REH contributed was Cormac's name in that story. Everything else is written by Andrew Offit. What I wanted to say is that I was amazed at how similar the story of Tigers of the Sea is to the short story The Dark Man, and he wants to know if we've read it. And I'm going to stop there because he goes into some uh, plot details of this story that we're going to get into later on this season. And I personally haven't read this one yet. Yeah, so that's about three or four episodes down the road. We've yep. got some uh, H. Rider Haggard and some Edgar Rice Burroughs to hit on before we before we end strong with some REH stories. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, so we'll be getting into that. Yeah, but uh, yeah, he ends the email by saying, I know that REH was pretty good at recycling, so maybe the two stories share some DNA. Keep up the good work, Chris. Um, thank you for the email, sir. Uh, I believe that, uh, you know, 
if you read all of REH's output, you'll see a lot of similarities across stories and some similar tropes have popped up, at least, you know, amongst the tales that we've read. But uh, yeah, it'll be interesting to come back to this later once we've read The Dark Man. Cool. And then we got a couple uh, emails from Andrew Berkery. Uh, let's see here. He says, hey, gentlemen, thank you for another fine show. As the topic of Howard's picks came up during the show, I thought I'd look around for some information to sate my own curiosity. I found the Delray brand McMoran, The Last King, has some interesting information in the appendices. Specifically, there's a part entitled Robert E. A Robert e. Howard and the Picks, a chronology. And so... Uh, there's a bunch of information there, and the Del Rey also has essays by Rusty Burke and Patrice Lunay. Uh, so, yeah, lots of lots of essay material there to delve into. And we'll be talking about those Brand McMorn-centric uh, stories towards the end, like we mentioned. Uh, he also dropped a message via Facebook, and I think this will be something we can come back to at the end of the episode, too. But he says he just checked the 79 Ace edition of Tigers of the Sea, and it includes an introduction by Tyranny, in which he tells us that he wrote the last 700 words or so of The Temple of Abomination, and the last 5,200 words of Tigers of the Sea. So way more of Tigers of the Sea versus Temple of Abomination. And I'm glad that uh, he sent us that, um, because we sort of suspected that the last bit of um tigers of the sea was not howard yeah and you know tigers of the sea is a longer story by far yeah it's still fair to say that proportionately more of temple of abomination is howard's than tigers of the sea but it's probably not a straight across comparison right yeah and then we did have a question or two about the picks during the tigers of the sea episode uh the picks play a, a, a large part in that narrative and uh, Rippa commented on the blog and said, I'd say Howard's picks play the part of historical picks, but are entirely fictional and intentionally so. So it's another one of those sort of flavor elements that Howard liked to use. He would right. throw in some real world history uh, and sort of put his own spin on it. Right, John? Yeah. And I'm glad to hear that Rippa is still listening to the show. Yeah, it had been a while since we had gotten that, one of those comments. Yeah. Hi, Rippa. So thank you guys for that feedback. Uh, we really appreciate it. Uh, if you'd like to send us some, be sure to email us at thecromcast at gmail.com. Uh, you can call us, too. That number is 859-429-CROM. CROM! And uh, at this point, our episode is dropped regarding the Conan RPG that's come out. Uh, if anybody's played around with those uh, quick start rules, has any, any thoughts to, to weigh in about that, please, please, please let us know what you think. For sure. And we hope that you're enjoying our RPG escapades as I learn what an RPG is and <laughs> Luke enjoys trying to kill all of us. <laughs> well, yeah. sir, I can say that uh, Yotas is the uh, smash hit sensation of bourbon and barbarians. <laughs> Sweet. And uh, as people will learn as the first few episodes go on, that is the first session uh, that we recorded. And uh, one of the uh, player characters may have had a little too much to drink. <laughs> it's a feel-good, carefree adventure. <laughs> Only until you fall in the pit, and then you get stabbed a bunch of times by goblins. Yeah, that's true. So you guys, wait, better... we have a there are goblins. <laughs> hey, you haven't got there yet. Oh, oh dude, no. the caves of chaos are truly, truly horrific. Truly, truly, truly horrific. I'm gonna have so many nightmares. Yeah, and <laughs> you guys better go back to. Uh, to the keep and get some torches. That's all I have to say. 
<laughs> all right. So, all right. <laughs> uh, we hope you're enjoying our Bourbon and Barbarians uh, uh, live play sessions. Uh, yeah, we're we'll, having a blast recording them. We'll uh, we'll just drop those as they come. You know, we're we're getting together periodically and playing for two or three two or three hours at a stretch, which means that gives us lots and lots of content. You know, we'll just we'll just keep that coming as long as folks tend to tend to react positively to it. And if if it's not your if it's not your jam. Just sit tight, you know, another episode of the Chromecast will be coming on the rig. All right, it's one thing time. And we're going to go back over to Nebraska and see what John has for us. Just corn. Corn, and one, your one thing is corn. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Uh, my one thing is a book that I just finished the other day actually called The Greatest Movies You'll Never See, Unseen Masterpieces by the World's Greatest Directors by Simon Braun. And it covers like, uh, I don't know, like 50 years, 60 years of Hollywood films that were in various stages of production before they were canceled, before funding fell out, directors dropped off the face of the earth or what have you. And there's just some really cool sounding different films in there. And it really gave me a flavor for film history. I actually really wish that I could talk about it with El Goro. I think he would have been a cool book club partner to read this book with. How about you, Luke? My one thing is going to be uh, Better Call Saul. It is wrapping up right around now. The season finale is actually coming out tonight, the night that we record, I think. Uh, and I am really excited to see how everything plays out here in the second season. Uh, I love that show and that's it. I'm, I'm really, really, <laughs> really excited to, to have that show as, as something to look forward to, you know, hopefully over the next couple seasons, you know, after, after tonight. I read a provocative article that today that made me think of you called uh, better call Saul is better than breaking bad. Ooh. Yeah. Maybe I'll send it to you. <laughs> Please do, you, do. Do you guys think that is true? Because I have seen Breaking Bad, and I know my feelings of, about that. You don't have to go into spoilers. Um, but would you, on the surface, would you agree with that statement? I I think I like it as much. It's 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 fun, and it's it's really good. And I think there's just as much uh, material to mine out of Better Call Saul as there is with Breaking Bad. Now, I, I have to say, I get a little bit irritated when there's like a show that ran multiple seasons and a, and a new show that only runs for like a couple episodes or a season. And people say, Oh, well the show that had the full run was so much better than the new show because there's not really an even playing field there to make the comparison. But I think at this point with two seasons of better call Saul out there, it is in my opinion, as rich and interesting a story as breaking bad is. And without the necessity of, of having seen Breaking Bad, uh, I mean, that certainly gives it part of its appeal, knowing, yeah. knowing the dead end road that things ultimately will get to. That's a, that's truly like a noir kind of, <laughs> kind of approach to the story. You know, things are going to be horrible. You just don't know how horrible they are going to be on the road to get there. Uh, but I like it. I mean, it's just really good. What do you think, John? I, I guess I wouldn't say it's better yet, but I like it more, if that makes sense. Like, I have a lot of fun watching it. Bob Odenkirk is just a delightful person, I feel. And I like Saul. I like Jimmy McGill. That's his name in the show. And he 
he's just he's almost the opposite of Walter White. Uh, that's part of what this article was saying was that they could have called this show Breaking Good because he's sort of <laughs> trying to be better than he is, but he just can't quite make it. It's a it's a great noir, like Luke said. Yeah, it's it's you know he's a guy that's got the best of intentions, but he's still gonna just f up every step of the way. That's just kind of who he is, right? Yeah. Well, he's got, he can't. He just can't fit into the world. I think he says a couple of times he's a square peg. Yeah, yeah. He just he can't fit in anywhere. Yeah, it's cool, man. There's just I think a richness with the characters. Like you see the recurring themes of these characters in Better Call Saul, Breaking Bad, just over and over and over again. Whether it's uh, Jimmy McGill or it's Mike Ehrmantraut or it's uh, Wexler, his uh, uh, Saul's. Saul's lady friend, uh, or even uh, Jimmy McGill's brother. Like, everybody, Chuck. Chuck, yeah, they all have some sort of turn towards uh, an amoral decision, which bites them in the ass, like, just over and over and over again. And it's so it's so great to know that that's what's going to happen, and that it hurts, and that you see so much, like, soul within these characters like this is such a soulful show you know exactly their intentions are good and the heart that's within them so it's pretty cool well i believe the first season of better call saul is on netflix and it is in my queue and i i need evidently to uh bump that up to the top spot in the queue right it's yeah man i would recommend it uh anyway that's (laughs) that's, that's i'm going to albuquerque next month Oh, yeah. And I'm going to like scout around and see if I see any of the sites that we see in the show. <laughs> My brother Kevin went to Albuquerque uh, yeah. back in the fall. Yeah. Um, he and his wife went out there. He went for a conference and then they turned it into a vacation. So they stayed another week and uh, they went on a couple of Breaking Bad tours. Um, Did they really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. cool. Cool. He's got some photos. They may, may be on Facebook, uh, but it's nothing else. I'll get him to send them to you. It's, it's pretty great. Uh, and he. Went to a uh, like a candy store that's like a Breaking Bad candy store kind oh, of cool. thing, and you can buy this like uh, blue candy that's they sell <laughs> in these tiny little baggies like blue meth. Uh-huh. They make it right there. Um, and he brought me back a uh, Los Tres Hermanos T-shirt. Oh man, yeah, that's pretty sweet. That's cool. <laughs> if we have any albuquerque listeners i would be willing to listen to your taco place recommendations or any food recommendations but i really like tacos <laughs> josh what's your one thing okay so is it tacos uh, my one thing is tacos <laughs> uh my one thing is a book that uh a regular guest on the Chromecast was involved in uh, putting together that is the unique legacy of weird tales the evolution of modern fantasy and horror uh, edited by justin everett and jeffrey shanks and this is a uh, premium uh, uh, sort of history of the magazine that we've been talking about on the show almost since the first day well definitely since the first day right weird tales um, one of the i guess incubators of the american uh, literary tradition. This book has a, a great detailed sort of history of the magazine, uh, along with some uh, articles that sort of uh, analyze the stories, critique the stories, and put them in context with uh, these authors that have been so influential, such as H.P. Lovecraft, uh, Robert E. Howard, Clark Ashton Smith, Robert Block, uh, C.L. Moore, uh, all these folks 
found uh, great success in terms of publishing their works within the pages of Weird Tales. And this book is, I think, instrumental for anyone who really is interested in doing some scholarship uh, in the pulps. And if you want to do some research on on uh, these these pulp authors, this book is where you want to start out. Cool. cool. I, I only wish that it had been published when we started this show. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it is very pricey. Uh, it's 80 bucks on Amazon, and the Kindle edition is not much cheaper. Uh, but if you ask your library to do an interlibrary loan or something like that, you can get your hands on it. Uh, I was lucky in that my university library ordered a copy for me. You got to love your library, dude. For sure. Yeah. Take your, advantage of your, the library. Your library will help you. It will love you back. You pay tax dollars for your library. That's right. Take advantage of it. Yeah. Go go. Uh, ask your librarian to get a copy of the unique legacy of Weird Tales for you and uh, check out some of this awesome information about some of your pulp fiction heroes. All three of those things were our... One day. All right, guys. So we should probably get into the story. Right? I guess so. We've been recording for about an hour and a half, and we've yeah, we've, <laughs> at least talking. Off mic. <laughs> we've dillied, we've dallied. It's time to get into some some truly heinous stuff. Court MacArt, he's seen some. He's some, seen some shit. <laughs> he's seen some shit. Yeah, he's seen the bad stuff. Yeah. Uh, so the story we're going to talk about is the Temple of Abomination. We have our buddy Wolf here back with us. We have Cormac here. And uh, I don't know about you guys, but I I really, really, really enjoyed this story, and I thought it was easy, breezy. It had a lot of really meaty hooks to it, I think. And not to give anything away, but this is one of my favorite Robert E. Howard stories. Well, Luke, you, you messaged us uh, before either of us, I think, had really gotten a chance to read it and said how much you liked this story. And it had been a while since that had happened. Yeah. So I, I knew that you must be pretty excited to talk about it. John, how did you feel upon reading the story? A plus. A plus? I yeah. give it a good grade, yeah. Yeah, me too. And, and you know, it's very short. Tierney did, um, uh, Richard Tierney did make some additions to the story or finish it up, as, as we noted earlier, but uh, there's a lot of Howard here, and there's a lot of weird tales here. So, And it seems really, really polished. Like, the whole way through, to me, it just read uh, so seamlessly mm-hmm. that I I don't know what the, the, the story was as far as the manufacturing of this story, but I have to think that it was something that Howard had worked on more than just in passing. For sure. This one's interesting in that we were able to get a sense of some of the comic book adaptations of it that we'll get into after we talk about the story itself. Cool. So let's, uh, you know, we don't have to go super in-depth blow by blow here, but, but in terms of the overall, the overall story, uh, I think we get some really great organic, uh, world building right at the front end. Basically we have uh wolf here and Cormac talking to one another and, uh, Wolf here says, easy all, I see the glimmer of a stone building through the trees. Thor's blood, Cormac, are you leading us into a trap? And then uh, Cormac re- replies, I never heard of a castle in these parts. The British tribes hereabouts don't build in stone. It may be a Roman ruin. I, I feel like just naturally there <laughs> through the dialogue of these two chaps, like you get the world building. You know the setting, you know the 
the the characters that we're dealing with here and it's just a really natural way to sort of give you a lot of information without just dumping it all on you i thought this was really cool because it sort of sets up how much of a scholar howard may have been of sort of early british history because what he's talking about here seems to be like between 490 and 500 if it's been around 80 years since alaric sacked rome that was in around 410 so we're in this like 490 to 500 range and it all sort of adds up he talks about Cerdic, who was a real or maybe legendary anglo-saxon leader and he talks about arthur pendragon of yes. uther pendragon's loins and he is talking about how these two are sort of getting ready to fight each other which some people think actually happened at the Battle of Bowdoin in what is now modern Bath, England. Yeah, so we're in this time and place where, like what I scribbled here in the margin, is civilization has left the Isles, right? So you have remnants of civilization, but largely things are, are falling into uh, pagan uh, craziness, right? Like there's a wild time come back again across the lands. The The cool thing to me about this was... Uh, on top of the the name dropping of Arthur Pendragon was uh, mentioning Lancelot in a historical context. <laughs> and Gawain. And, Gawain. and yeah. these are not figures that I'm used to reading about in historical context. You know, there are all these, um, I guess, documentaries and articles you can find about the, the quote, quote, real King Arthur, but you never hear anything about the real Lancelot. And <laughs> so to hear Howard's version of the King Arthur story is just so cool. It makes me uh, almost hunger for uh, an Arthur story, uh, a version of um, Le Mort de Arthur written by Howard. That would have been really cool. <laughs> well, I got to be honest, like here within the first few pages of this, like the way that it's lined out, uh, there's this back and forth between Cormac and uh, Wolf here and there, there's the I wrote, what I wrote here is the tri a trinity of antagonists. Like I wondered if we were going to see uh, Arthur and Lancelot and Gawain as like the the opponents of of Cormac ultimately, or at least be like the shadows of the yeah. of the bad guys in the distance that that they are fighting against. And that's not how the story ultimately ultimately plays out. But I think it's cool how you have these characters coming up in that multiple of three in a fairy tale kind of sense, but it's grounded in sort of a historical basis. And they're not necessarily the good guys from Cormac's perspective. No, you get the sense that they're ferocious. And in fact, Cormac says, Arthur, one of your Danes might seem a gentlewoman beside him. He's a shock headed savage with a love for battle. And then he grins and touches his scars as if he's remembering <laughs> uh, by the blood of the gods, he has a hungry sword. It's little gain we reavers from Aaron have gotten on his coasts. <laughs> I thought it was interesting how Howard also sort of touched on Arthur's his, or mythical disputed parentage. Uther is supposed to have been magically transformed by Merlin to impregnate uh, what's it to impregnate Igraine. Okay, he is go. made to look like Gorlois, Lord of Tintagil, and that's how Arthur comes into the world. But maybe. Arthur's pretending to be Uther's son in Howard's Howard's universe here because he says that he doesn't look anything like Uther Pendragon. 
I, I did not think of that. That's really cool. Basically, we have this mix of world building with Arthur and his his Cretans that that are here, you know, at least in the lands. There's the Druidic temple that it seems that they're citing, and so you get a sense of these of these Druids, which are which are quite horrible. And then uh, and then there's also these comments about Christianity. Oh yeah, the comments about Christianity were strong, weren't they? Mm-hmm. So it says they had entered the tall grove in whose shadows crouched the broad squat building that seemed to leer out at them from behind a screening row of columns. This can be no temple of the Britons, growled Wolf here. I thought they were mostly of a sickly new sect called the Christians, or called Christians. Uh, and so I like how with this exchange between the two characters, Christianity is is a newfangled thing that's that's you know posed to their viewpoint on the world and it says funny things like they eat babies during their ceremonies it said like there's there's almost an element of witchcraftery like uh like like deviltry surrounding the christian uh newfangled sort of perspective on things for sure john do you have any historical perspective on that uh just what i've heard in dan carlin's hardcore history episodes about how hard it was probably for people like wolf here to stomach the Christian attitude, the live and let live, the forgiveness, the turn the other cheek yeah. kind of thing. He talks a lot in his episode, Thorns, Thor's Angels, about how you almost had to transform Jesus into this warrior God. And he talks specifically about, I think there's a headstone or some sort of stone that they have found that seems to portray Jesus as he was interpreted by some of these Gallic or Germanic or Nordic peoples. And he's got a giant spear and he's getting ready to kill people which is definitely not the the typical christian jesus he took the lance from longinus and then yeah. he leapt down from the cross and <laughs> wrought ruin upon his foes I, I found something cool today um so there was a fanzine called uh Cromlech, which published uh sort of was one of the first early versions of robert e howard scholarship Mm-hmm. Uh, from what I can tell, the first issue uh, was first published in 1985, and there was an article in it by Robert M. Price called Christ and Conan, Howard's View of Christianity. And I wasn't able to track down that article, but I was able to track down uh, an article from uh, a publication called the Namidian Chroniclers. And in that, uh, they talk about this article, and there were a, co- uh, a couple of really cool quotes. Here's one of them. Robert E. Howard's religious inclinations, from what little we know of them, seem to have been ill-defined and his views tentative. We know, for example, that he attended Sunday school and other church-related meetings among the Baptists and Methodists, and knew enough about the views of the Campbellites, or thought he did, to defend them in sophistic debate. We know that he hated the Roman Catholic Church largely because of some vague inherited grudge. He claimed to be an agnostic on most spiritual questions but was favorably disposed to belief in reincarnation. This last belief comes out especially strongly in his fiction and poetry. Yet there are other hints, no less clear, which reveal a definite feeling toward, or should we say against, Christianity, a distaste which only grew stronger as Howard's life went on. And we've explored some of these themes in the context of Howard's writings. Um, In particular, uh, within the Solomon Cain stories and the Conan stories. And so I wanted to ask you guys, do you think that Christianity 
is compatible with being a Howard hero? Almost certainly no. They all take insult very personally, and if not seeking vengeance, then they seek retribution and justice of their own variety, as opposed to saying, I forgive you, we're all brothers in Christ, and we're all human beings. But there are elements of it, I guess, that that they could maybe accept. Yeah, I would say only in as far as it's like the the end of the road, born again mentality that a that a hero might find, uh, and specifically, I guess, like Solomon Cain, like okay. someone that would find find peace ultimately and and begin to turn the other cheek. And I don't know. I mean, we don't necessarily see Solomon Cain ever do that, but but you get feelings of him being tired of of his his road of vengeance that he's upon. Uh, but he's also tired of Christianity in those stories. Yeah. And I think we spent a lot of time talking about how he wonders how how can Christianity be right when I see all this injustice right. in the world. Yeah, and I think at the end of this story, there's at least some interesting statements are made, that are made about Christianity uh, by a character that we meet. And, and Cormac and Wolf here still don't quite understand what what it is that they're encountering uh but it seems like uh that it gets wrapped up within the final message of the story uh i don't think it's resolved and i don't like clearly cormac and wolf here don't don't latch on to it but there's at least a direct consideration of it so i think i think these characters these howardian characters wrestle with that but I don't think that any of them embrace it. I'm trying to think if like Dark Agnes had any sort of uh, lines of relating to it. I can't recall anything though. Can you? I can't recall anything either. And I, I would, I guess, posit that much like Solomon Kane, she's the, the character of Dark Agnes is sort of wrought with this Old Testament feel, right? This this righteous vengeance, this this cleansing fire type of of. Um, uh, God, and so Solomon Cain, I would argue, is is very much an Old Testament sort of guy, while while not really being uh following like a Jewish tradition, right? Um, and Conan, we see in A Witch Shall Be Born that he was crucified, but his crucifixion differs in a number of important ways from the crucifixion of of Christ. One of those ways is that he arises from this crucifixion, right? He manages to get himself off of the cross and, in fact, becomes stronger than he was before being crucified. And this triumph is not because that uh, because he is a living God. Uh, his triumph is due to his own humanity. It's due to his barbaric vitality, which is something that was mentioned in that uh, uh, Namidian chronicler right. that I mentioned. So we'll be sure to link both that and we'll post uh, uh, the bibliographic information for Robert M. Price's article as well. Yeah, I guess like the characters that I'm thinking of, like Howard's characters tend to be anti-Christian in a lot of, in a lot of ways. I think maybe the tone of stories are a Christian. Like they don't like, I feel like this story is not outright an indictment of, of the viewpoints of Christianity and not even just Christianity, but 
all Abrahamic traditions, right? right. Yeah, like that. That any any of those turn the other cheek type of approaches. Like this is this is Nietzschean, right? Yeah. But that said, like I feel like the story ends, and it's not necessarily damning uh, Christianity. It's just like making a statement of, well, that's what that character within the story holds to be as their beliefs, but we don't, like Cormac and Wolf here saying, well, we still don't, we still can't reconcile with that. Uh, I think that's supposed to be Howard, though, right? Like, in his own life, it sounds that he maybe had that confusion that everybody around him, sounds like his family and friends were probably quite Christian, but he just couldn't get behind it. His heroes are all self-propelled. They don't need to rely on a deity, per se. Krom is you know, off in a mountain and he doesn't right. care about you. Krom is and the perfect atheist deity. I think that a lot of his characters exhibit his struggle with not with his atheism, with trying to reconcile his atheism with his upbringing. And so we have Cormac and Wolf here talking about Christianity as though it is the uh, religion of slaves, yeah. right? That you meekly bend to the, the, the whip. And you turn the other cheek and you practice nonviolence. So I want to read this part because it's one of my favorite lines okay, in the go story. For it. So Wolf here says, that's not a creed, but cowardice. He's decided finally, these Christians be all madmen. Cormac, if you recognize one of that breed, point him out and I will try his faith. Uh, that is an insidious, oh, for look you, he said, that is an insidious and dangerous teaching which may spread like rust on the wheat and undermine the manhood of men if it be not stamped out like a young serpent under the heel. So two things. One, he talks about wheat rust, which is <laughs> I think yeah. pretty cool. And two, he equates Christianity to the serpent, to to something uh, that needs to be stamped out like a serpent under the heel. I think that is such a powerful, powerful piece of prose, just the way that it juxtaposes Christianity with that, that serpent imagery and as something that at this point in time within this historical context could be stamped out. I think it's just such a such a cool bit of writing. Yeah, for sure. I I like that Cormac's response is, let me but see one of these madmen and I will begin the stamping. <laughs> and then he brings us back into the story and says, but let us see to this temple. <laughs> so, yeah, we have this great aside where uh, we get some insight into Howard's viewpoint uh, in terms of Christianity, or at least, you know, it would seem as though Wolf here and Cormac are uh, sort of summarizing what Howard may be trying to work out internally. And I think it's, but again, it's really effective world building because it's these two characters exchanging their beliefs in a really pretty organic fashion. Uh, and then like the next bit is they talk about the Druids will bless our raid against these Saxons, much as mummery, but their friendship is at least desirable. You get this blending of of the real world with like the the mythic. Like the druids aren't right all in all magicians. They aren't right like they aren't outright magic users, but Cormac's not totally sure about that. And and I like that uncertainty of of what's real, what's mythic, what's magic, uh, that sort of bleeds into the story. I was curious what your feelings were on the druidic parts of the story, Luke, because you've often expressed an interest in them and, and their ceremonies. Yeah, sure. I think this yeah. is cool. Like this is, uh, 
you know, I'm I'm not uh anybody that takes any of the the sort of like left hand path religions like as a serious doctrine that I would ever want to like just jump into, but I'm really fascinated by these uh these schools of thought and so I feel like the way that the druids are depicted within this story it's pretty it's pretty believable at least within this sort of mythic sense and you would think that druidism would uh in this time be a much more ancient practice one that there would be you know some stuff known but many secrets still kept about versus christianity which is still in its infancy something that struck me as they begin to enter the temple is uh their their crewman black rothgar says something about the fungus springing up about the temple, how it twists and writhes like souls in torment, how human-like it is in appearance. And if you take a look at modern phylogenies, you'll see that uh, fungi are more closely related to uh, animals than they are to plants. And it always strikes me as odd that mushrooms would be much more closely related to uh, humans on an evolutionary basis than they would be to to plants. I don't know. It just mind it's, blown. It's something that made me think, <laughs> "Holy crap, dude!" You just sprinkled a little Lovecraft all over the top of it. <laughs> we are all the same. <laughs> I, I was thinking Bill Hicks. We are all one. Yeah. <laughs> Man, it's just it's so it's so crazy. Like you get like that character. What's his name? Black uh, Rothgar. <laughs> <laughs> like I, I read that and I thought of like uh, Abercrombie has a character who's just the most absolute badass within the uh, the books of the first law uh, called Black Dow and he is like he is the meanest son of a bitch you have ever seen and I just I feel like t- that naming like the namings he, he within the story are just so so effective like what's another one Osric Jarl Jarl Spain. Yeah, right. I think Jarl's Bane. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. Yeah, like you, you these we might run into these characters within uh, Bourbon of Barbarians. Oh, that'd be great. <laughs> yeah. But so, oh, go, go ahead, go ahead. Oh, I was going to just say. So we we get into this temple, and some of the the crewmen of our merry band start to see some things, right? And specifically, it's Cormac, right? He sees something that looks like. It has the the trunk of a man, but the the legs of a goat, and it has horns upon its head. It leaped and capered like a goat, but ran upright, and in the dim light, it was not unlike a man. And everybody's like, "You're a crazy pants, dude!" And so I like that we get this blur, this blurring again of like what's real and what's myth. I think that's the real power of this story. I think with the last story. I griped, or I, didn't, I don't know if I griped, but I, I said I wanted like some sort of necromancer or some sort of sorcerer to like pop in, mm-hmm. and and John I know offered a convincing argument for why that that's not the power, like the power of the story is actually to be really grounded in historical fiction, but I think this story really worked for me because you're uncertain, like all through to this point, it seems like the real world with these men that just happen to believe in some kooky things. Because, like, Cormac snaps back and he talks about, like, who saw a troll on the beacon of Helgolid and roused the whole camp with shouts and bellows. Like, they all have some sort of superstition. And so you're doubting until, like, the the scary bits hit here in just a minute. I like that it says, your mad wolf here said uneasily, his mythology did not include satyrs. (laughs) 
Which, which sort of gets at the heart of the story and what I think makes it so cool, at least in my standpoint, is it is a blending of multiple mythologies with, with theology, with Lovecraftian horror, like that in and of itself, this, this masterful blending, uh, that Robert E. Howard and Richard Tierney do of all of these different source materials into one is just masterful. Yeah, it's truly it's truly believable the way that the way that it comes across on the page. Uh so they go they go deeper in to this temple uh that they've that they've come across and it seems like Cormac's seen a seen a satyr but nobody else believes him, right? So they keep going deeper in and what do they see? Like some some uh reliefs and some art on the walls, right? That just isn't kosher yeah you don't get really a description of what they see other than it it was horrible oh go ahead which in and of itself is kind of lovecraftian <laughs> yeah the per the the figures were human and not even the most perverse and degenerate geniuses of decadent greece and later rome could have conceived of such obscenities or breathed into the tortured so stone such foul life like that's that's some a plus prose right there <laughs> and i like that with the way that this is that this is written like it's almost otherworldly, but there's a there's a short paragraph that's actually only one sentence in length that sort of sets is set apart. And Cormac, it says here the thought that he had briefly entertained that he had been that he had seen and slain a hallucination vanished. Like it's like Cormac, upon seeing these like really horrific elements on the walls, it yeah. grounds him. Like it brings him back to square one that this is some scary shit, and it just it's he's it's real and it's here and it's something to be dealt with like to co be coped with yeah the bar reliefs have brought him back into yeah. reality it made me think that that statement about the the horrible obscenities breathed into the tortured stone have you seen hellraiser 3 i don't think i've ever watched hellraiser 3 have you seen hellraiser 2 I don't think I've ever seen Hellraiser 2. I've okay. seen one. <laughs> I've seen the original Hellraiser. In, in Hellraiser 3, it begins with Pinhead sort of trapped in this stone statue, and uh -huh. only this blood spatter kind of brings him out of it, uh, and he requires even more blood to, to come out. Hellraiser okay. 3 is really when he becomes more of a Freddy Krueger or Jason Voorhees figure. Uh -huh. um, but I started thinking about that. Like, what if they they were Cenobites frozen in this living stone? I don't know. It It's... Uh, Brought me into some Clive Barker. <laughs> well, it has it has that feel like the the satyrs. I mean, we'll, we'll talk about it here in a here in a short order about whenever you talk about satyrs as a mythic kind of creature, what that entails. Yeah. It's, it's a weird mix up of uh, of a whole bunch of stuff. Of a whole bunch of stuff. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Well, we're inside this temple. And uh, we see all of this terrible imagery in the stonework. Um, and then suddenly a trap is sprung. It's a trap! <laughs> it is a trap. I can't do an Akbar, but he died. <laughs> what? Akbar died, dude. The actor? The voice of yeah. Akbar died. Really? Yeah. Really? Yep. This That's week? The truth. Like maybe last week. I didn't know that. Sorry. We should have told you. <laughs> you should have told me. Yeah. Uh, no, it's okay. That's so really sad. So Cormac is really, really uh, taken aback by what he's seeing here. He's gotten grounded, uh, and they notice that they're in the middle of the room, right? And so he starts looking at the flagstones, mm -hmm. and 
they walk onto this large rectangular stone and Cormac is looking around. He notices that they're, they're on, actually it says it's octagonal. And even as he realized he was standing on it, he felt himself plunging into an abyss underneath. And the only thing that saved him was his superhuman quickness. So he's got a dexterity of like 18. And he's, he's nimble and he avoids the trap, but oh shit, that's where the real stuff happens, right? Well, yeah, well, he's, he almost falls into this trap and he notices as he jumps out of the way and as his compatriots grab his belt and keep him from falling in, he notices some blood, uh, a, a blood trail on the edge of, of this pit. Yeah, and it's a stinky, stink, stink, stink rises up out of the pit, right? Exactly. And they start talking about, well, maybe we should just burn this place to the ground. Because Cormac was right. He did stab something. And maybe he did see a goat man. And Wolf here is starting to believe. He says, come away. That stench was never born on Earth. This may well must lead into some Roman Hades, or mayhap the cavern where the serpent drips venom onto Loki. What's that all about, John? Uh, the punishment of Loki is he does one too many bad things and they tie him up underground, I think under the tree, under Yggdrasil, and a serpent, a worm, drips venom from its fangs into his eyes, and his wife sits there with a cup over his eyes to catch it, but every so often she has to empty the cup, and then the venom gets in his eyes and it burns real bad. Oh, Oh, man. man. Is that the Midgard serpent? Uh, no, that is not the Midgard Serpent. I, okay. I don't think, at least. I okay. think it's a different one. A different serpent? Yeah. Okay. The That's Midgard wonderful. Serpent is the one that kills Thor. It encircles the world? That's right. It's around okay. the equator. That's right. So, things are going from bad to worse within this this temple. It's almost abominable. They can't believe what they're saying. <laughs> uh, I have here, they make a choo-choo train where they sort of <laughs> drop down into the pit to follow where the blood spatter goes, right? Do they go? They drop down, or do they just go around the corner? I thought they went around the corner, but they might have dropped down. I'm just... Okay. It says, oh, no, 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 that's right. They hear some sounds down there. It says, uh, the warriors bent close from somewhere far down, an incredible distance, it seemed. There came a sound, a nasty, squashy, wallowy sound mingled with noises indescribable and unrecognizable. So, horrible to behold, but they're going to have to figure out what's down there, right? Well, I, I don't think they go down there. I think that they withdraw from the edge of the pit, and then... Yeah, they sort of do the Scooby-Doo thing. They yeah, all like, look at each other like... Jinkies! No way, oh. Scoob. Yeah, no <laughs> like, way. Okay, down that corridor. Yeah, okay, down, okay. so down the down the hall and around the corner, they hear somebody kind of... <laughs> not quite a death rattle, but almost. They decide, okay, let's we got to check it out. Because they were thinking, okay, let's bail and try to burn this place to the ground. But, of course, stone won't burn. Yep. And this is when the belt choo-choo train happens. Yes. That's, as okay. described it. Yeah. I was I was getting mixed up. I was thinking we lowered down uh, Cormac, but you guys are right. So they just go around the corner, and then they see bodies that are in exquisite, horribly tortured states, right? We have such sights to show right. you. <laughs> they see a man with pins stuck into his yeah, head. Cenobitic ecstasy. Yes. No, they see someone chained to the wall, right? All emaciated and, and bloody. And it turns out he's one of these accursed baby-eating Christians they've heard so much about. Only he seems like a kind of a nice guy, really. Fabricius, yeah. right? Fabricus? Fabricus, yeah. yeah. I'm going to say, yeah, Fabricus. Water. Water in God's name. And they give him so some what? They kind of pump him up, right? They they try to get him out of there. They ch- they chop him off the wall. 
Yeah, that's a cool scene where uh, uh, Wolf here raises his axe and brings it down and and uh, crushes the chains. And Fabricus, he's trying to tell them, like, I am a man of God, I'm a Christian, I'm a priest, but you you all got to get out of here because there is an evil, evil thing that, that has slithered from the outer dark, from the ooze of the Orient, and has transplanted itself to cleaner lands, rooting itself deep in good British soil. It's older than the Druids, and if you don't leave, it will crack your soul like it's tried to crack mine. So I want to point out, at this point, uh, Fabricus makes a remark that uh, he says something here. He says, no matter, all men in the rightful form of man are brothers. And so that seemed to me like almost a biblical quote. So I Googled it. <laughs> okay. And what came up was, uh, all men are brothers, which is uh, the name of the autobiography of Mahatma Gandhi. Okay. From 1958. <laughs> And really? I, it's funny, like that that quote, which uh, Howard is really sort of channeling into his his Christian mouthpiece within the story, is it struck me as very as very Buddhist. I wonder if we're getting close to the tyranny part because we know that he does the last five hundred or so words. Yeah, and I don't know, I didn't count, so I don't know about where tyranny might have picked it up. Uh, if that's the case, like. Like an abstract for a paper is just like three or four hundred. That's true. And this is yeah, you're right. Like so, that, we're we're still quite a ways before that. So I think tyranny did the the very end the the sad like teardrop the Christian dies kind of bit. Spoiler okay. alert. Okay. Oh, okay. <laughs> but 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 we don't know for sure what was edited within it. Right. right? Exactly. Uh, but it's it's just weird to me that that remark is. Is a fairly uh, is a fairly Buddhist kind of statement. I mean, it is a Christian statement too, no doubt. But it's it's kind of funny that given Howard's fixation on the Buddhist mindset in some of the stories we've talked about, mm-hmm. that it that it's there at least to some degree. Yeah. So I don't know. Maybe that's maybe that's a tenuous. <laughs> no, 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 no. I don't observation. Think so. I don't think, I think so at all. To something that's one of those Buddhist slash Christian kind of things, right? If you go back to the, I don't know, the OG Jesus kind of sayings, he sounds pretty Buddhist, right? To our modern ears, yeah, yeah. <laughs> OG Jesus, like they're, <laughs> yeah. Buddh- Buddhism and Christianity can can be you can be both, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. They're, I, they're I would say so. Not mutually truly, exclusive, yeah. and they're quite compatible. I think. Um, but the, another thing that it reminded me of was the fact that, uh, we've seen some shape shifting, uh, man monsters, right? In this very season of the Chromecast, we saw some serpent men. Oh, (laughs) David Icke would be happy again. Say it. Kanamaka. <laughs> Dude, you sounded like JFK just then. Kanama. <laughs> We're going to the moon. <laughs> Kalima. <laughs> we've we've derailed. Oh. oh. Okay, so uh <laughs> Fabricus hears something coming. And this place is full of abominations. He says that. <laughs> yeah, they didn't see the sign at the front that said, Welcome to the Temple of Abomination. Basically, Fabricus tries to get them out, and they don't listen, and they pull a typical Viking move here. They all whirl around. They are not going to leave, and they form a shield wall, 
and they are going to kill some demons. And there's plenty of them. Yeah, there's tons of goat men, along with one uh, individual that is luminous with an evil light in the darkness of the winding the corridor. Druid. Dark druid. So it says here, Cormac snarled like a wolf, and the giant and the great Viking wheeled about, rumbling defiance like a wa- lion at bay. I, I wrote here, it's, it's pretty cool that our heroes are... Uh, snarling like primitive animals, like like predators, about to face off against these these monsters from the void. Uh, and then prior to that, uh, Fabricus says, "Even now he comes. May God protect us all." So so we have the chain Christian that's appealing to God, and and our heroes are like snarling like primitive animals, right? Like yeah. so they're about to face off. It's just it's so visceral. You can <laughs> there's there's some. Some clear imagery that's at play here. Yeah, this feels like Howard writing to me. And then we join the battle where a hideous horde, as page 183 of our our book shows us, this nice pencil drawing of some daemons that are kind of ugly, I guess. They got a lot of whiskers, wouldn't you say, Luke? Yeah, this uh, this zebra edition, It's there's some cool line art in this story, right? Yeah, for sure. These things reminded me of the things that Solomon Cain fought uh, in Wings of the Night. Wings yeah, yeah. in the Night, rather. But basically, they just start hacking their way through all of these demons till they get to the Dark Druid, the Teacher of Men, the the Light... What did you call him, Josh? He's He's got a halo around him. Yeah, he has, he has a dark luminosity about himself. Perhaps uh, like Lucifer Morningstar? Like Lucifer Morningstar. I thought of Prometheus as well. Yeah, okay. I could get behind that. Nice. Or and, just the King Serpent Man that survived King Cole's initial culling of, <laughs> uh, of the Serpent People. Oh, uh, that, was that intentional? Yes, thank you. I <laughs> did think through that. Uh, yeah, so this guy is the last living Serpent Man, and we've encountered them before. Uh, but even more than that, uh, he it's implicated that this is the tempter from the Adam and Eve story. This is the guy that screwed it all up. Yep, he messed everything up. I guess Cormac is going to close the circle that close the loop that King Cole started to close. I think this is the cool thread that unites the majority of our Howard pieces of the season is this Serpent Man thing. And I wonder if we'll see it show up at all or if it'll just be Cormac showing up in the the Brand McMorn stories. But this Serpent Man portion of the season has been the thread that that's really united us with Howard stories, at least. Yeah, I mean, in this story, you have Arthur coexisting with uh, Lovecraftian Shoggoths and Starseed comeback uh, alongside the the Serpent Men of Cole. It's just it's just a melting pot of stuff, but it doesn't feel like Howard's pulling various sources and just trying to mix match it all up together. It really works. It just he blends it. it. It does work. So I had a question here. So you you mentioned Shoggoth. So let's let's get uh, a little bit further in the story. So uh, Cormac is able to kill the Dark Druid, and Fabricus is is saying, "Okay, you've you've slain the Dark Druid, and now I can tell you about him." Before the Romans, before the true Celtic Druids, before the Gales and the Picts, even was the Dark Druid, the teacher of man. So he styled himself, for he was the last of the serpent men, the last of that race that preceded humanity and dominion over the world. His was the hand that gave 
to Eve the apple and set Adam's foot upon the accursed path of awakening. King Cull of Atlantis slew the last of his brethren with the edge of the sword in desperate conflict, but he alone survived to ape the form of man and hand down the satanic lore of olden times. I see many things now, things that life hid, but which the opening doors of death reveal. Before a man were the serpent men, and before them were the old ones of the star-shaped heads, who created mankind, and later, the abominable goat spawn, when they realized man would not serve their purpose. This temple is the last outpost of their accursed civilization to remain above ground, and beneath it ravages the last Shoggoth to remain near the surface of this world. The goat spawn roam the hills only at night, <laughs> fearful of now of man, and the old ones and the Shoggoths hide deep beneath the earth till the day when God mayhap shall call them forth to be his scourge at Armageddon. And then Hellboy will beat them. And Hellboy will have to be there to stop them. <laughs> so there's a lot there. Let's unpack that long Jeez, paragraph. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's the history of the world in a, in a very short space of, of, of text. It's very Blavatskian. What do you mean? It's that, that old timey jazz, you know, that history. That, that old time religion. <laughs> well, the, this race created that race, created yeah, this yeah. race. This begat that, and so begat the star people, and the star people begat the goat men who are the competitors of man. It's it's really awesome, but it's also really creepy to think about. It is creepy to think about, and it works. And the only thing that, that jumped out at me here was this mention of the Shoggoths and the star-shaped things. So let's talk about that. What is What in the world is a Shoggoth, Luke? It's a, it's a monster jelly monster. <laughs> Fair enough. It's a large, it's a large, uh, morphy sort of slithery thing that you might run into uh, within the mountains along the continent of, of Antarctica if you were cruising around and you went into a, a cavern. Yeah. So the Shoggoths were first mentioned uh, in Lovecraft's uh, poetry called uh, the Fungi from Yoggoth which is a, a sequence of sonnets that he wrote in 1929 and 1930. Right. Uh, and then he expounded upon this concept of Shoggoths in At the Mountains of Madness. This and basically they're like the, the slave race, right? That's, that's exactly. working for the elder ones. They've been harnessed and and they're they're, they're slaving away, but they, they say no. Yeah. I mean. They tend, they tend to rise up, right? Like <laughs> they tend to fight the power. Uh, Shoggoths, unite. <laughs> Uh, and they also say to Kaylee Lee in that story. Anyway, <laughs> um, they've been used by other weird fiction authors. Uh, evidently, Robert Block used them in another weird tales story called "A Notebook Found in a Des uh, Deserted House." Um, so Shoggoths are, as Luke indicated, these protoplasmic sort of giant amoeba things that uh, are sentient and very powerful. And so I started looking around to try and figure out if. Howard used uh, the Shoggoth in the story, or if that was an addition by Tyranny. And so since we are at the last bit of the story, it makes sense that that's Tyranny. And I couldn't find a copy of the original outline uh, from Howard, but I did message Jeffrey Shanks earlier today and asked him, do you think that the Shoggoth was used by Howard, or was that something that Tyranny added? And he supposed that Tyranny probably added that bit. Um but it does seem to sort of unite these different 
uh, disparate uh, mythologies and and theologies. And for that, I think it it works in the story, but it is something that jumped out at me and and it made me wonder, you know, is this is this something that Howard got from reading at the Mountains of Madness or is this something that he might have gotten from his correspondence with Lovecraft? And I guess I just don't know. So if anyone out there knows uh, if Shoggoths were uh, and the other Lovecraftian tropes were originally used in the story, it would be cool to, to know that. Yeah, you could. I'm, I'm thinking about like if I just mix those lines out and there's there's the relationships of hand down the satanic lore of olden times. I think see many things now, things that life hid but which the opening doors of death reveal before men were the serpent men and before them were the old ones of the star-shaped heads. Like, you get the sense with what this druid represents that he's he's the older, he's the elder evil. Uh, so I think even without the love, without the Lovecraft nod, it would, it would just clearly just kick ass and still function. Uh, but if, if this is a tyranny or tyrannin, uh, it, introduction it i think it works in a, in a seamless enough fashion to really still help the story john were you confused or perplexed about what a shagath was uh no i have google so i was okay <laughs> <laughs> good fair enough well, well even if you don't like even if you if you don't know what a shagath is and it's hard to tell like within the at the mountains of madness i mean you get a sense there at the end as they're running away from a shagath what it is but it's hard to get a sense of what those creatures were until they're chased, right? Right. Like, you get a clear picture of however the hell you want to describe those star-shaped, uh, the, <laughs> yeah. the, el- the, elder, the elder things the elder or whatever. Ones. Uh, but the Shoggoths are, are scarier given their, their sort of unknowable shape and appearance. And the fact yeah. that they are intelligent and sentient. I guess I felt like I knew what it was based on, I made a joke about Hellboy earlier, but I feel like that term is yeah. not thrown around in Hellboy, but the Agu Jarad or whatever they're called uh-huh. are, are Shoggoths. Is that fair to say? Actually, no, I would say the, the, the Agu Jahad or whatever are like the elder gods. Like they're the hmm. Cthulhu equivalent. They're the As- Asoth. Oh, so Shoggoths are under Cthulhu. Yeah. Yeah. And, the Shoggoths oh, okay, okay. are like, are really like the blob and unrelated okay. to Cthulhu. They're not tentacly. Nope. But they could be if they wanted to be. Protoplasmic jellyfish type things. Like an amoeba. Like a, a really big, smart, strong amoeba. Okay, see, the, the Google didn't help me understand that. Thank you, Dr. <laughs> I was just wondering if uh, when you got to the word Shoggoth, if you were like, well, what the hell is that? But there's a mix of that with like the pagan element of the pan, satyr, uh, weird uh, creatures with... Luciferian sort of tropes, like you've got the the Satan aspect, and it's it really transcends Christianity, right? Like Fabricus is is relating this to his his Christian lens, but we get the sense that it's it's way way older. There's been a fight that's been going on for for a while. Exactly, uh, these serpent people have been trying to infiltrate uh, humanity since the ages of coal, right? Prior to the Atlantean cataclysm. Um, and you mentioned earlier that we would get into satyrs and fawns and what they actually represent. So this seems like a good time to talk about that. What What is a satyr? Goat person. Are, <laughs> are there any uh, uh, anything else 
Is there anything else that uh, you might be able to tell us about these goat people? They play the flute or uh, what's it called? A pan. Pan pipes? Yeah, pan pipes, and they like to get it on. And they have cloven hooves. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, they're virile. They like to... They're too mess it. <laughs> the too mess it? Cromcast. Um, <laughs> yeah, so I looked up satyrs and fawns earlier today, and I, I really hadn't delved into the differences. I just thought that they were the same thing, just different names. Uh, satyrs are actually companions of Dionysus in Greek myth. They're half human and half horse, uh, but they only have two legs, so they're not centaurs, right? They still look like a man. It's just they have horse feet. Uh, fawns are the Roman analog with goat legs and a, a human upper body. They're associated with the god Faunus, uh, or also the Greek god Pan. And so uh, between Dionysus, uh, Pan, and Faunus, and uh, also Faunus has a female companion as well, uh, Fauna. Uh, there's a lot of similarity and overlap, but but also difference. Um, but essentially we get uh, these different horned gods, right? That's that's point the first, horned gods. Uh, point the second, the, some association with nature, uh, be it forests, plains, fields. Um, we get this, uh, as, as John and Luke indicated, uh, sexy time aspects of these, uh, satyrs or these gods and flute music, uh, at least when it comes to pan. Free love. Free love, right. <laughs> so, uh, according to the Greek historian Plutarch, uh, pan is the only Greek god who actually dies other than Asclepius. I jotted that down in our notes and I, I don't know why I felt that that was important, but, it, it does seem relevant to the story in that we're killing lots of these uh, satyr-like things. But to go a little bit further, a uh, Christian theologian named G.K. Chesterton, who I had never heard of prior to today, suggested that Pan's death is the precursor to the advent of theology. Uh, he said that it is said truly in a sense that Pan died because Christ was born. It is almost as true in another sense that men knew that Christ was born because Pan was already dead. A void was made by the vanishing world of the whole mythology of mankind, which would have asphyxiated like a vacuum if it had not been filled with theology. So I guess what he's saying here is because Pan is dead, because this this uh, aspect of the gods that uh, sort of draws us or makes this connection between humans and nature it, uh, dies, we get this birth of, I don't know, a, a different type of God, a, a different type of religion. Yeah, yeah. This is the this is the thing the things that really fascinate me with talking about <laughs> the the various pagan religions and something like Christianity, like you, you can have these corresponding, like the the story of Easter and then the story of like Beltane, like <laughs> you can have those types of uh, holidays overlapping and coexisting and be, what's the right word, like uh, co-opted by by newer faiths taking on these older faiths that are really familiar, right? I think it's just really interesting to think about how people want to mm-hmm. have these types of symbols in their head. I don't know. I'm... Yeah. <laughs> Well, that makes me vocalize. sound really Jungian, but no, no, I <laughs> no, it doesn't. I think you're onto something cool because, like, break it down even further. Satan is often depicted as half or partially goat-like, right? Right. The new movie, The Witch, has a goat that turns into the devil. Have you guys the seen goat that? Yet? Has become a part of the satanic lore, 
And I've not seen The Witch yet. I haven't either, I but I, I know that part yeah, of it is that the goat is Satan in the movie. Spoiler alert, whatever, who cares? <laughs> but uh, we have turned that the goat into that sort of symbol. He's part of this pan representation as well. Yeah. Right. And all of the things that pan represents, Christianity also ends up condemning. Sex, free love, drinking, good times, music, <laughs> good all times. those kind of things. They they become sort of shuttered, right? Wouldn't right. you agree? Yes, I would agree. And in fact, uh, a British historian, folklorist, and professor at the University of Bristol named Ronald Hutton uh, has argued that that specific association, that association with satyrs and uh, goat imagery with uh, Satan, is a more modern view and actually derives from Pan's popularity in uh, Victorian and Edwardian neo-paganism. So he suggests that uh, medieval and early modern images of Satan are actually not very goat-like. They show him as... that's true. Yeah, they they show him as uh, sort of a semi-human monster with horns and wings and clawed feet and that goat aspect, that Baphomet aspect is not there. I I think of like uh, the opening scene of like the exorcist where they're digging up the the statues and all that kind of thing and you see was it like Azazel or whatever mm-hmm. the, uh whatever the 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 demon is and it does not look like your traditional Baphomet sort of pan god it is the big the big tusks <laughs> and the big scary talons mm-hmm. and it is a monster and so pan it, you can almost imagine that if you were a pre-Christian pagan worshiper or or follower of pan uh, maybe you're a herdsman and and you have to go out in the woods a lot and you revere pan because uh i don't know pan is represents that aspect of your life uh and some christians introduce this notion of well here's christ and here is uh your pan and and actually pan is this uh aspect of satan and look satan has these crazy horns and so does pan so wouldn't you rather worship this God who is of the good and of the light? And wouldn't you like to leave this sort of darkness behind? I, I guess I can imagine how Pan would have sort of been transformed from this nature, free love kind of God into this uh, God of darkness and mystery and, and evil. Yeah, it's, it is a, a wide open, scary, natural world. And, you know, we're talking around these things, but like, the, the Mac and Great God Pan story is like really that's that's what it's it's just to to see that devil in all of his like glory is to be like it's like it's the Hellraiser sort of epiphany of of the of the sexy with the the horrific like all at once. I like that we've been talking about Hellraiser so much in this episode. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I don't know if I like. I didn't. I didn't mean to just reference Mackin's Great God Pan there, like just as a as a as a point of referencing it, but I like that kind of description. I think is a universal sort of horrific, scary uh, feeling that the world can latch onto. Like regardless of of what your faith is, like there's this this larger wild world that that's that's oddly arousing and scary at the same time yeah there, there's something that's somewhat seductive about that primal aspect of of humanity of, of getting in touch with your more bestial side which is why we see neo-druidism and all that kind of stuff right right 
that that we want to return to that somehow, which I feel like Howard hits on a little bit in this story. Uh, he he talks about the druids at the first part, and then at the end we have our pagan heroes save the day. Uh, but the Christian sort of gets the last word on the whole matter. Yeah, he says it is. It is as our Lord told me. All difference between us pale before the menace of the dark powers. I, we be all brothers. As is his Zen Buddha Christ moment. And then he uh, goes beyond the gates uh, to where we know not. It almost feels like Howard's saying that Christianity couldn't have survived or existed without these pagan interferences. Oh. Do you, do you know what I mean? Like that. Dig in a little bit more. That humanity couldn't have survived without this this Cormac and Wolf here attitude of cutthroat survivalism and that them conquering demons in the natural world led to the ability to have, quote-unquote, civilized Christian society. Okay. so Luke has a quizzical look on his face. I no, no, like no. It. I'm totally tracking. I mean, I think that's... I think that's a deeper meaning that's, that's that really is here. Like, that, that seems just at a base level, like saying that, that seems like something that Howard would really want to to promote or, mm-hmm. or at least say. But within the context of this story, that that does make sense. And I like that, like the, la- the last lines, like Wolfier says, I know not, he was mad and his madness led him to doom. Like they still don't understand that dude. But the fact remains that that dude needed them to, to make the difference. With, with killing Satan, right? <laughs> I, I guess, yeah, or, or at least the Satan analog. I mean, yeah. John said something earlier that that I think was pretty profound, and that is that this uh, priest Fabricus is or uh, giving us his interpretation of history through a Christian lens, yeah, right. And so, if a Norseman were to give us the same story, the serpent people might have been aspects of uh, the Midgar serpent, right? Right, like so, they're the 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 Christian is putting it into that context, uh, but maybe if the tables had been turned and the Christian had found Wolf here hanging from the wall in this temple, the story might have been somewhat different. Do you see what I mean? It would have to be. You're right. I mean, it would have been tinted with Loki and the Midgard serpent and and all the dragons that are populated in Norse mythology. So. It's not an accident that Howard makes it they save the Christian. That it's not that they save a Pict or something, right? Right, yeah. I think I don't so. Know, I, I feel like he's trying to say something about... It's his, his, his normal thesis, right? That the barbarian will always be there to save the world. That the civilization only goes as far as we allows it. And that at some point, it breaks down. And there still has to be somebody that's willing to chop the shit out of some demons to save the day. <laughs> right. I think we delve deep with this story, man. I think so too for a story that's less than twenty pages long. <laughs> man, I I really did. I I enjoyed the hell out of this. What did What did you guys think? Summary thoughts. It's just so dark and moody and scary. Like it's a scary story. That it's really a temple of abomination. It's a trap. It's got twisty, turny corridors and scary goatmen that remind me of the Kentucky Goatman. Goatman. So I I dug it. Yeah, I agree. I, I think it's a great story. But I wanted to ask you, John, we've touched on this, but let's just ask you point blank. Last time we talked about a story, 
was Tigers of the Sea, and Luke's mentioned, hey, what if this had sort of a more mystical bent? Well, this one has a more mystical bent. You said the scary part about Tigers of the Sea was the fact that these types of sacrifices that the Picts wanted to do actually happened. Yeah. And so that is, you know, documented, right? We, we know that through archaeological studies. And that makes Tigers of the Sea really scary. But then you said this one was actually pretty scary. So rate them. How, how would they compare to one another <laughs> in terms of, of your uh, views that you told us about last episode I, or two episodes back? I, I guess I'd give a cop-out answer that it's hard to gauge now that I know that there's different influences of tyranny on each story. Because Howard is such a mood setter. And I think Wright's a really excellent, scary setting. We've seen that time and time again that I don't know if it's fair to put his scary situation in the Temple of Abomination up against possibly Tierney's scary situation in Tigers of the Sea. For me personally, the idea that there were blood sacrifices going on on the British Isles is in the time frame of 600 AD to 500. AD or whatever you want to call it, that that's terrifying to think of that. But this one is such a deeper cut of Blavatskian and Christian and Nordic myth and terrifying demons and all that kind of stuff that it is scarier, but less enthralling, historically speaking, as a as a person who likes history. Just I don't know if that made any sense or no, if yeah, it was word salad. It, no, no, it makes sense. It, it's the context, right? Yeah. Uh, so I sent you guys a link earlier to a, a Red Sonia comic. This was a, uh, a Marvel comic that was an adaptation of the Temple of Abomination, but it starred Red Sonia in Marvel Feature Volume 2, Issue Number 1, right? So I don't know much about Marvel Feature. John or Luke, do you guys know? Actually, no, I, I don't know that title. Yeah. Nor do I know. Yeah, no, uh, it seems as though Marvel Feature was this this trying or proving ground for new concepts or or even uh, different types of stories with older uh, comic characters. Um, and so this one was the the very first time that Red Sonia found herself in her own solo adventure uh, up to now. Roy Thomas had sort of dropped her into Conan stories, right? And so she co-starred along with Conan, but this is the first time that she was in her own solo story. And uh, the first feature, there are two shorter features in this. The first one is The Temple of Abomination, written by Roy Thomas, penciled by Dick Giordano, and uh, inked by Terry Austin. And it's quite a bit different as compared to the story we just read that all of the the cool mythological and theological questions are gone and Sonia sort of goes through this temple mows through everybody and then gets the heck out that's I'm, I'm flipping through it now and that's pretty much what it looks like yeah plays out at it's, least it has cool Dick Giordano art that is true the art is pretty and the uh, the follow-up story in this is uh a reprint, but this time it's colorized uh, from Savage Sword of Conan number one, uh, titled Red Sonia, written by Roy Thomas and featuring artwork by Esteban Morato and inks by Ernie Chan and Neil Adams. And there's a uh, a small little 
it's not even a close up. It's part of uh, Sonia's face uh, by Morato and Adams. And I'll hold it up. Oh, for you guys. that's awesome! Isn't that cool? Yeah, that's really yeah. Good. It's real. It's real classy. There's no chainmail bikini. There's just uh, flowing red hair and a, a golden earring and some kind of a, a diadem on her forehead. Anyway, I, I uh, as as I was doing research for the episode, ran across that and uh, thought that would be pretty interesting. So if there's anyone out there that has a copy of that comic, let us know what you think. Uh, do you like the Red Sonia adaptation? Uh, do you prefer the Howard and Tierney version? Uh, or if you've read the Dark Horse Cormac MacArt uh, adaptation of this story, let us know what you think of that. You just drew a satanic symbol. <laughs> I did. I also wrote. Kiss the goat. Kiss the goat. Um, on my <laughs> my copy of this, not it wasn't like a paperback. It was just the you know the printed like the the scan. The Xerox. Kiss the goat, John. <laughs> no, thank you. I, I, I hate goats. Bow to Pan. <laughs> Bow to Pan. Where are we going next time? Which I'm sorry, I was about to just go. I was about to go full on <laughs> Satan. Just make make love to the goat. <laughs> Wash my cloven hoofs. <laughs> Damn. Sorry. Dang. Yeah. <laughs> I just switched up some uh some devil with some Christian imagery there. With a Batman voice. <laughs> <laughs> Swear to me. <laughs> uh let's bring this boat back around. Right. We're I'm turning it You're to the captain. It's it's going, it's going, it's going. Okay, we're back out of Devil Waters and we're back back into to good to the good grounds. Our next stories are gonna be fun, I think. We're going to talk about King Solomon's Mines, which is an H. Rider Haggard story. Uh, following that, we're also going to talk about H. Rider Haggard's She, but specifically we're going to try to watch the 1965 movie, I think, rather than trying to tackle two of his of his stories. Uh, King Solomon's Mines is a short novel slash novella, so we've got a little bit of reading in front of us, uh, but I'm excited. And I also DVR'd at least one of the film adaptations of that. So I'll be able to watch that too. Cool. I don't know much about that story, but when I think about it, I think about Indiana Jones. Big adventures. Yep. I know that Sean Connery plays him in League of the Extraordinary Gentlemen. (laughs) Is that Alan Quartermain? Alan Quartermain. Somebody do a Connery voice. Yes, of course. Yes, of course. I did play him. I did play him. Yes. Of course, of you guys, course. You guys are way better. I, I caught a little bit of Tom Hardy Bane coming through. Yeah, just yeah. It was it was a little bit too much. <laughs> this has been a raucous episode of the. Contest. This has been. I'm, <laughs> but we've, I, I feel like we've uh, really researched this story and dropped some pretty cool information about it. Power of Christ compels us to bring to it back around. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us about where the good people can find us, Josh, please. Well, you can find us on the web always at http colon forward slash forward slash thecromcast.blogspot.com. You can email us at thecromcast at gmail.com. And we're on both Facebook and Twitter at thecromcast. And if you are so inclined, you can call us at 859-429-CROM and leave some voicemail. Please do. Please, yes. The fire rises. That's nice, man. <laughs> and I believe we're done here, aren't we? All right. Yeah, yeah. We're going to wrap this up. Okay, everybody. Have See you fun. next time in the mines. Bye, bye, bye. Bye. Three, four.
Lonely, unmarried, looking for love. Life was passing me by. So I sent off my photo, hobbies and age. Magazine marriage I'd try. They say for centuries, lovely Japanese girls have been trained in the art of pleasing men. Be lonely no more, open destiny's door. For one dollar they arrange a meeting. My image was wrong, I didn't like me, so I changed my personality. I bought a deluxe Mersey beat wig, but it was a size too big. What confidence in my new built-up shoes, so smart for winter or summer, undetectable in normal everyday use. Look out, there's a monster coming. Bye-bye binoculars and Macintosh, everything is just great. I take elocution, learn to speak posh, but still I can't find a mate. Be popular, learn to play the guitar, in seven days you could be strumming. Be sociable, learn kissing technique, look out there's a monster coming. my canal because I reshape my nose, plastic surgery's best. To cut down my weight off comes my left leg, I pass the swimming costume test. On my sideboard, through long road, my aftershave pong, I know my new nose ain't running. What's wrong with my time, I getting too high? Look out, there's a monster coming. Disfiguring ugly my facial hair, I had removed electrically. I rejuvenated my energy cells and regained my virility. Grunt, grunt, he put my hand on my heart, I didn't change any part. He had a machine for a mummy. Please be gentle with me, I come to pieces, literally. Look out, there's a monster coming. 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 I'm sorry that I sidetracked this with Anne Rand. 